Scripture lesson this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. But I'll begin the the reading in verse 3. We thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and when we always pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, direct us now in this holy word that has come from the hand of the Apostle Paul and by your Holy Spirit. And indeed, may your Spirit direct us that we might see Christ more clearly this day, understand who we are in Him and the lives that you've called us to to live in this world for your honor and glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What is poetry and what purpose does it serve? One definition from Webster's Dictionary states, Writing that formulates a concentrated imaginative awareness of experience and language chosen and arranged to create a specific emotional response through meaning, sound, and rhythm. Perhaps a simpler definition for poetry is glorified speech. When regular speech just won't do, you resort to poetry to express the point in a deeper way. In the movie Dead Poets Society, starring Robin Williams, there's a scene when his character, Mr. Keating, a literature professor at an exclusive all-boys prep school, somewhat humorously tells his class that the purpose of poetry is to woo women. Now, why is that? What is one of the implications of that statement? That poetry has an effect that prose does not. It's hardly accidental that some of the greatest works of literature, whether ancient, medieval, or modern, are written in poetic form. 
Well, the Apostle Paul knew something of the power of poetry, since it's generally agreed upon that our text this morning, Colossians 1, 15-20, constitutes a poem. There's discussion among scholars as to whether or not these verses were an early hymn of the Christian church. Uh, that might have already been known or used, and we don't really have any way of knowing whether that was the case or not. I'm more inclined to think that what we have here is original with Paul and constitutes one of the most beautifully written and theologically rich passages in the New Testament, in the New Testament epistles. As mentioned last week, Paul's language is so packed with theological imagery and implication that we can hardly begin to exhaust it. But in keeping with the established theme of the letter, Paul's teaching here is fundamental to the maturity to which he desires the church in Colossae to pursue. If Paul sets forth gratitude uh, as foundational for maturity in verses 3 to 14, then another foundational point he's setting in verses 15 to 20 is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I hope that isn't a letdown, though stating the obvious, or that you now think, well, I already know that, and then you let your mind wander from this point forward. Now, what Paul says here is not only theologically profound, but also practically profound. When we, understand, uh, when we understand what is said here about Jesus, then our life and calling as the church, as saints, comes more sharply into focus. Now, the structure for this poem makes use of a general chiasm, an A-B-B-A pattern, combined with parallelisms, giving the poem a slightly different feel or look than a strictly uh, traditional chiastic structure. The A section in verses uh, 15 and 16 makes use of key matching phrases who is firstborn, that in him, things in the heavens and upon the earth, through him and in him. Then in the corresponding A prime section in verses 18c to 20, we hear, well, we hear the similar phrases. Who is firstborn, that in him, through him and in him, and things upon the earth and in the heavens. And note the slight change in order from heaven to earth in in verse 16, then then to earth and then heaven, at the end of verse 20. Then in the center of the B sections are found in verses uh, 17 and the first half of verse 18. And he is before all things, and he is the head of the body. If you're interested in more of the specific of these details, I'm happy to recommend a couple of resources for your further study. But this is the basic structure, and it, it gets even perhaps even more muddled in our English translations, which change around word order of the Greek text. But the, the basic thematic pro- progressions can still be seen. One further note about the structure of this poem is that it has two overarching themes, which are also connected. But there's Christ's role in place and creation in verses 15 to 17, and his place and role in redemption in verses 18 to 20. Or perhaps we could even say creation and new creation. And we'll consider how these are related in Paul's theology. But again, hopefully this gives you some mental hooks upon which to hang things, some some ways to organize your thoughts a bit as we consider this text together. And as you have occasion to go back and read through it and meditate, uh, meditate upon it further in future occasions. Well, let's begin to make our way through the text. And and Paul begins in verse 15 saying, Who is the image of God, the unseen one, firstborn of all creation. Of course, he's speaking about the beloved son mentioned in verse 14, with the language of beloved echoing the declaration of the father at Jesus' baptism. 
Jesus is the image of the Father, the invisible God. Even as John declares in the opening chapter of his gospel, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Only the Son has seen the Father. Jesus later states in chapter 6 of John's gospel, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Any and all Old Testament encounters with God, whether Moses on the mountain or Abraham with the three visitors, two of whom were angels, were encounters with the pre-incarnate Son and not the Father. But if you want to know what the Father is, is like, look at the Son. He is the image. He is the representation of the Father. Later in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Paul clearly establishes Jesus' identity, which also acts as a subtle apologetic against Judaism, establishing Christ's position and relationship to the Father. Now, for Jesus to be the firstborn doesn't mean that he was created, which would be to deny his eternality as the second person of the Trinity. Rather, for him to be the firstborn is to declare his status or rank in relation to the creation, that he's the captain over it, that he holds a place of supremacy, and even that he has the right of inheritance as the firstborn. Now, the, the creation was created for him. It's all his. It's his inheritance. Then notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 16. That by him or that in him all things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the seen and the unseen, whether thrones, whether dominions, whether rulers, whether authorities, all things through him and in him were created. Here we encounter Paul's first two uses of all things, um, or more literally, the all. He uses this same phrase again in verses 17 and 20. We could possibly even render it the totality. Paul sees the world as a single whole, so to speak. But then we notice four other uses of a form of the word all as we proceed, totaling eight uses of all throughout the poem or throughout the hymn. Now that makes, that makes it a significant theme of the poem as is evident when you hear it, when you read it. And with the number eight being the number of resurrection, new creation, that theme may be subtly supported through the repetition of this word. The ordering of words by the apostle also adds to the beauty of the text. Uh, there's a thema thematic chiasm in the word order of heaven, earth, seen, and unseen. You know, written from our perspective, heaven and what is unseen go together, and then earth and what is seen go together. And these four, uh, these four or sets of pairs then seem to be balanced by the mention of the four that come next with the references to the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. How to interpret or separate these four terms can be challenging. One scholar suggests that thrones and rulers refer to positions held and powers and authorities indicate the presence of those over whom authority is exercised. Uh, there's certainly... Uh, human application for these terms, at least some of them, but there also may be angelic applications as well, understanding that angelic forces were at work in the old creation, even as we read about in the book of Daniel and other texts. 
regardless of how we're to understand the specific application of these terms, what's the singular point that we can be sure of? That Christ created these power structures, that they were made by Him and for Him. What's more, we're overwhelmingly presented with Christ as the creator of the world, of the cosmos, which is stating the obvious, but a point not to be forgotten. See, there, there are definite echoes of Genesis 1 to be read here and to be heard here. But we should also hear echoes from Proverbs 8, where Solomon describes the presence of personified wisdom, accompanying the creation of the world and participating in it, even as Jesus is the fullness of wisdom. This carries into verse 17, where Paul says, And he is before, or he is above all, and the all in him has proper place. So Jesus has the preeminence. He has the priority of place before all. And then all in him have their proper place. They all fit together. Again, Paul's poetry, he's writing beautiful, beautiful poetry, even as this verse also has a subtle chiastic structure to it. Above all, all have their proper place. And the idea that everything has its proper place, that he holds it all together, that he causes it to stand, is a fact that shouldn't be too quickly passed over. It's full of tremendous encouragement. The whole, the the totality, all of creation is held by him, is composed by him, is put together by him. There's not a single piece out of place, nor is there a single aspect of creation outside of his control. And as the creator, all of creation belongs to him and owes him allegiance. The fact that Jesus is the creator denotes ownership. And even though the powers mentioned in verse 16 may be in rebellion against him, nevertheless, he remains their true Lord. So having noted Jesus' place in relation to creation, we now come to verse 18 where there's a bit of a a turn in the text, isn't there? And he is the head of the body, the church. In a sense, this seems to come out of nowhere, particularly the mention of the church, which causes a bit of consternation for some scholars. But as we proceed, we can see the theme of new creation emerge and the drama of redemption subtly unfold. The fact that Jesus is the head of the body, the church indicates priority of place. His supreme place. Also, the term head can indicate source. So taking our parallel structures into account, just as Jesus has the priority of place in the creation and all was made through him, so he has the priority of place in the church, in the assembly, and is its source of creation. An interesting application of this is that as the church parallels the created order, the cosmos, therefore it's also a microcosm of the created order, and what we do here then flows out into the world. As one theologian puts it, the church is the nursery of the world. The influence flows out to restore the cosmos. What does Paul say next in verse 18? Who is the beginning, the firstborn out of the dead. The word beginning that's used here is actually the singular form of the word we rendered rulers back in verse 16. It's a term that can mean ruler or principality, but also means beginning or origin. So Jesus is the origin. He is the beginning, again echoing Genesis 1. Just as he was the firstborn of all creation in verse 15, 
Now Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn out of the dead. And to what do we understand that to be a reference? Well, the resurrection. So of those who have been dead, Jesus has the preeminence, the superior place. But this hints at something, doesn't it? That something is amiss in the created order, that something has gone wrong. And of course, we know that to be sin and how all of the creation was affected by Adam's sin in the garden. But just consider, the Son, the Creator, came to this world in order to die for what He'd made for the very creation that owes Him allegiance but pursued rebellion as descendants of the first Adam. And still more consider the imagery and the implications of what Paul's saying here, that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Why? So that He might be in all the one being first. The language here seems to indicate that Christ's preeminence, Christ's position of priority of place, had to extend even to the realm of death, that there couldn't be a single place where he wasn't the Lord. And so he went even there to establish his rule, his place as the chief principality. And perhaps for uh, an expanded treatment of this, sometime later go and read Paul's exposition of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think you'll find the theology is the same. But what a marvelous image. What an impression that should make upon our faith. And what an encouragement to those whom Christ has redeemed. That so great is His love that it extends that far. I think we know this. But I trust it's helpful to take the time to think more deeply upon it. Jesus was willing to die. Jesus was willing to cross over. And death has been sorry ever since. Well, Paul continues in verse 19, that in him was pleased all the fullness to dwell. Uh, the ESV reads fullness of God, supplying what is believed to be um, the implication, and that could be. The New King James reads, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Again, that's possible, but, but it's still adding to the text. Uh, the more literal reading, again, is that in him was pleased all the fullness to dwell. Doing a bit of English grammar, the fullness is the subject of the sentence or the phrase. So what is meant by the fullness? Well, I think we can get some hints from what Paul has mentioned thus far in his letter. And the first would be the Trinitarian perspective of his writing. That's the first clue. Second, this word pleased or delighted is significantly used by Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the baptism of Jesus in describing the Father's commendation of the Son, that He's well pleased, that He's delighted in Him. Third, what happened at Jesus' baptism? Well, the the Spirit descended upon Him and remained upon Him. In other words, like the tabernacle and temple, the Spirit found in Jesus a place to dwell the fullness of God, the glory of God, found a place to inhabit. Fullness and glory are overlapping ideas, and so we can understand Paul's use of the fullness as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Then verse 20, And through him to reconcile the all in him, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether that upon the earth, whether that in the heavens. Even though we already know it, Paul further confirms that something has gone wrong. Otherwise, reconciliation wouldn't be necessary. And what has been reconciled in Christ? Everything. The all. The totality. And how did he do it? By making peace through the blood of his cross. 
Reconciliation was necessary on account of sin. Peace had to be made between God and man. Paul expounds upon a similar idea in the second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. And as he writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, of the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And notice that the reconciliation spans the the whole of the cosmos, all of the created order, whether things upon the earth or things in the heavens. Christ achieved peace between God and man, and that means that there can also be peace between man and man. And as Paul is expounding upon the lordship of Jesus Christ for all of life, that should be a further encouragement for us in our calling as Christians, because our lives are the continuation of Christ's ministry of reconciliation. It's been entrusted to the church. It's been entrusted to all who bear the name of Christ, who've been baptized, in whom the Holy Spirit is also pleased to dwell. The implication of Paul's poem, of this hymn, they're all-encompassing. As one New Testament scholar inspiringly writes, there is no sphere of existence over which Jesus is not sovereign in virtue of his role both in creation and in reconciliation. There can be no dualistic division between some areas which he rules and others which he does not. There's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. The task of evangelism is therefore best understood as the proclamation that Jesus is already Lord, that in him God's new creation has broken into history, and that all people are therefore summoned to submit to him in love, worship, and obedience. The logic of this message requires that those who announce it should be seeking to bring Christ's lordship to bear on every area of human and worldly existence. All things, the all, the totality, every last bit has been reconciled in the work of Christ upon the cross. And because Jesus' saving work is all-inclusive, as Paul is describing in this poem, then that means that every aspect of our lives, that the, the daily grind of the mundane, the ordinary tasks of life are given a certain dignity. When we act like Christ, when we obey his word and commands, when we live out the gospel, then we are participating in the reconciliation that he achieved and demonstrating it to one another and to the watching world. Christ's blood brings reconciliation to relationships, whether in marriages or between parents and children or between siblings or between friends or even between enemies. And when we deal with sin properly in relationships, confessing our sins to one another as needed, when we are driven by the gospel, recognizing the peace that Christ has achieved and the forgiveness of sins that has been granted to us in him, then we are to be all the more ready to forgive and be reconciled with one another when estrangement takes place. Again, the implications of Paul's poem are immensely practical. Maybe we think there's a situation that's too far gone, that reconciliation isn't possible. But should that be the disposition of faith? After all, look at what has already been reconciled. Look at what Christ has already achieved, even overcoming the the greatest barrier that existed between God and man. If that has been overcome, then how can faith conclude that a particular circumstance or relationship is beyond the reconciling power of the gospel? Even consider for a moment or two the the picture of new creation that Isaiah supplies. What does he describe? 
The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The wolf and the lion, violent animals, are described as being nonviolent. Wolves eat sheep, but instead it will be like they're part of the same flock eating grass together. That's a significant change, isn't it? That's a reconciliation that's completely unexpected, that might seem impossible, but not in the new creation. A change has taken place, and we should understand that change profoundly beginning in Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross when His blood was shed in order to achieve peace. There He took on all of the disorder, all of the chaos, all of the alienation that resulted on account of sin. He took our place, and so began the new creation, restoring the rightful order for the world of the first creation before the fall. And it's for our faith to see that, to behold that, to hear that in Paul's poem, recognizing what Christ has accomplished, and that there's no need of anything else but Christ, that there's nothing to be added to His saving work. He's reconciled it all. But then finally, let's also be encouraged that in light of Paul's poem, in light of the marvelous theology that's here, that we again recognize Christ's unassailable position and His place of rule over authorities. He made them. He put them into place. They serve Him. And even they are being reconciled to Him. And yes, there are still plenty of them uh, still in rebellion, who want to burst the bonds and cast off the cords of the Messiah, but their efforts are doomed to fail. (laughs) Jesus is the laughing king, and these rulers have already done their worst to him, and he is triumphant, he is victorious, and he is in heaven, and he laughs at their schemes. He's taken away their threat of death and swallowed it up in victory, and that victory is imparted to his people, to the church, for which we give Him thanks. And when that fact settles upon our faith, when we recognize that, when we recognize that to be true, even as the reality in which we live, then we we can give ourselves all the more to the work of the Lord, even abounding in it, knowing that our labor in Him is not in vain, that every aspect of our lives has purpose. And this should encourage us to continue on to even be immovable in our endeavors for the kingdom, pursuing the message and ministry of reconciliation that are ours in Him. Jesus can't be stopped, and neither can the church. And the enemy knows it, and that's why their actions are so desperate. And as we make Paul's powerful poem, his hymn, all the more our own, let us be that much bolder and steadfast looking unto Jesus who is first, who is preeminent, who is supreme over all, even death. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Colossians. And may his words this day come to us powerfully, that our faith may be more inspired to greater boldness and steadfastness, that we would understand the ministry of reconciliation to which we are called, Each and every day, even in the simple things of our lives, may we pursue all of them to your glory and to your honor. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.